May the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The midnight explosion at the Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station vaporized one worker on the spot. Another 30 were drenched in ionizing radiation and died soon afterward. As of 2005, about 5,000 people were believed to have died from radiation-related illnesses. The accident left nearly 2,000 square miles uninhabitable. It precipitated the end of a global empire. The story of the disaster is a fascinating interplay of human and technical elements. It takes an advanced degree to grasp what exactly caused the accident. Involved control rods, neutrons, plutonium, water, turbines, and something called a moderator. But the catastrophe was made possible by the Ponzi-like culture of the plant itself. It was a place of secrecy and selfishness, ambition and arrogance. There was no greater purpose than advancing one's own career. And all of us who have worked in businesses or schools or even churches can understand the danger in that. And in the end, lots of people suffered because of the callousness of their leaders. Hosea 5 opens with an emphatic call to attention. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. Do you notice how the population at large is sandwiched between the institutions entrusted with their welfare? The nation of Israel is under judgment, but her behavior and destiny were in the hands of the priesthood and the royalty. Though far from guiltless, lots of people would suffer because of the callousness of their leaders. This morning, we're continuing to work through the book of Hosea. It's been a bleak picture thus far, and it only gets harsher today. And I realize that it is, uh, quote-unquote, in the Bible, but I think it's worth asking, why dedicate entire sermons to passages which are equal parts confusing and depressing? (laughs) Old Testament prophets, like Hosea, describe eloquently the power and scope of sin and injustice. And getting into that world gives us an unmatched view of the ever so much greater power and scope of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope you see today. This passage is a powerful reminder of where we've been and where God is taking us. So I'm going to use the story of Chernobyl as a kind of guiding metaphor And I want to say something as we work through the passage in relative detail about contamination, 
entombment and restoration. First, contamination. After that triple summons with which the passage begins, God issues an indictment with metaphors drawn from the world of hunting. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. One of the themes of Hosea is that idolatry always leads to injustice. And God had established Israel's monarchy and priesthood to protect and guide his people. But corruption in the halls of power was robbing them of freedom and life. Like snares, the Israelites were trapped and in prison in idolatrous worship. Hosea says these rebel leaders are knee-deep in the slaughter they have caused. And that may be an extension of the metaphor, but some commentators take it more literally, and they, they, I think, cogently argue that that bloodshed, that slaughter, may indeed refer to the child sacrifice practice at that time and condemned by prophets like Ezekiel and Hosea. Excuse me, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Well, the Lord promises to discipline all of them. And those specific places, uh, Mizpah and Tabor, they may have meant something to Hosea's original readers. They mean almost nothing to us. At least that's what the scholars say. But did you notice, I think this is really interesting, they're described as victims not perpetrators. They're singled out, these places, not for their complicity in Israel's infidelity, but as having been wronged by her leaders. Now, why does that matter? Well, there is, in the Old Testament, this integral connection between people and place. And we said, Peter said, idolatry, it leads to injustice. And here, it's spoiling both the land and its inhabitants. Well, the grounds for the coming judgment, they're given in verse 3. Ephraim was the leading tribe of Israel and representative of the country as a whole. And God says, I know you. You are not hidden from me. Oftentimes in the Bible, when we hear phrases, uh, the notion of the Lord knowing us, it's supposed to bring us comfort. Like Psalm 139, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Here, that knowledge is supposed to sober us. It reminds me of the the colic for purity that we pray at the beginning of our worship. Lord, you, all the thoughts and desires of our hearts are known to you. Therefore, cleanse us by the power of your Holy Spirit. But when the Lord looks at Israel... He sees faithless, illicit activity. They've spurned the love of God like a husband who regularly cheats on his wife. I tried to say something two weeks ago about how Hosea uses the language of infidelity to talk about sin. And it was really profound, so I'm not going to repeat it here. (laughs) But I do want to draw your attention to verse 4. This is a fascinating verse. 
their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Think on view here is the harm that Israel has caused. Israel has damaged her relationship with God beyond repair, such that repentance is no longer a human possibility. A return to the Lord, if it will indeed happen, will be because the Lord and the Lord alone makes a way. In the, um, in the Baptist church, I think, there's this remarkable phrase to describe our calling to Christ. It's referred to as being seized by the power of a great affection. Well, this is another example of the, of the negative relief portrait Peter mentioned last week. Israel has been seized by the power of a great affection, but it's an affection of, of disordered love. I think the worst part is that she may not even know it yet. Israel may be unaware of how far she has fallen and the crisis that awaits her. Hosea's ministry began under the time, under the reign of Jeroboam II, who was a king who united Israel, and they experienced a a flourishing that they had not for over 200 years years. I think this is why Hosea stresses that God sees them, that despite their stable borders and strong army and high GDP, the country is is rotten at its core. Well, you would think that after witnessing a nuclear reactor literally explode right in front of you, there would be a swift and candid effort to explain what happened. People need to be evacuated. Immense resources need to be marshaled to address the situation. But that's not what happened. The plant director at Chernobyl, knowing that he was going to be the fall guy, and so accustomed to looking out for himself, and spinning whatever situation was right in front of him to his own personal advantage, didn't tell anyone what happened. It took 10 days to communicate it. It's a similar dynamic. The stranglehold of bad habits did not permit him to do the right thing. And all the while, what looked like a huge cloud of white vapor filled with radiation was spewing out of the top of the reactor and poisoning the atmosphere. There's an anecdote recorded in a book about the whole breakdown that is fascinating. It's about the morning of the accident was pretty bright and sunny. So the local residents, not knowing that there had been a nuclear meltdown, he went upstairs to the top of his apartment to sunbathe. And he noticed that he was becoming unnaturally tan And so he got excited, ran downstairs to tell his neighbor, hey, you got to come up here. Something awesome is happening. And the neighbor was tipped off that his skin, it smelt like something was burning. And so he didn't go outside. (laughs) Israel's high and holy places may be located in places like Tabor and Mizpah. 
They were like open nuclear reactors. The failure of their leaders had led to a situation where the land and its inhabitants were being irreparably damaged. And no one paid attention. There's no mention in Hosea of repentance or attempts at reform. They were sunbathing when they should have been repenting. Contamination, entombment. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. Now something really important happens between verses 1 through 4 and verses 13 through 15. Something quite dramatic the tribe of Benjamin, which was right in the middle between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, is invaded. And its invasion signals um, the greater desolation that awaits the country as a whole. And we're told in verse 11 that Israel, once flourishing uh, in prosperity, is now oppressed crushed in judgment. They were beginning to experience the cold, harsh winds of God's judgment. Unfortunately, Israel sought relief from their symptoms rather than a cure. They offered tribute and sought an alliance with Assyria, the superpower at the time. But there was no balm in Nineveh. They cannot heal you, the Lord says. In fact, Israel's problem was not a weakened army, political instability, or a shrinking area of sovereignty. In verse 14, God identifies himself as their real foe. To quote Odetta Holmes, and then, of course, Johnny Cash, God is going to cut them down. Verse 14, a verse that has never made it onto a bumper sticker. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. In other words, God's saying, if you think it's bad now, what with these sores? Wait until the nation is destroyed. You'll be torn, taken away, captured with no one to rescue you. I have to admit, this kind of description of the work of God is troubling. Hosea contains some of the most memorable descriptions of God's love in all of Scripture. But it also contains passages like this. One writer noted a paradox that's found in both Old and New Testaments. Namely, that those who often stress one pole of God's activity are most likely to be aware of and underline the other. So it's Jesus, who's gentle and meek and mild, who nevertheless speaks of the darkness and 
agony which follow unbelief. It's almost, this writer said, as though the love of God cannot be seen without his severity. Maybe you find those theological gymnastics helpful. Maybe you don't. Regardless, what happens here is judgment full stop. The consequences of the idolatry described in the first part of chapter 5 are felt by the end. And the situation was so severe, it could not be solved through a gradual, smooth process of improvement. Israel was going to have to die and come back to life. In 24 days after the explosion at Chernobyl, Soviet engineers began designing a containment building to cover the radioactive housing of the damaged reactor. For 206 days, construction crews worked around the clock, and they built a structure that involved more than 2 billion pounds of concrete. And this process of uh, encasing radioactive materials, it's called entombment. And what they built at Chernobyl is called, or is now called, the sarcophagus. It was a tomb like no other. And this is where Israel is left at the end of Hosea 5. Her idolatry has ended because her high places are buried six feet underground. Containment, excuse me, contamination, entombment, and finally restoration. Martin Luther King said, death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. There is a comma of sorts in verse 15. The Lord will withdraw from Israel like a lion returning to its lair until, it says, they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. This is a hint. It's just a hint, but it's a glimmer of hope nonetheless that the Lord's anger and the Lord's absence will not be the whole story. They're scenes in a drama which need later acts for clarification. The judgment that Israel received was not strictly punitive. It was designed to awaken them to repentance and to lead them to seek the Lord with an urgency and an immediacy that they had never known. There's a great line it's from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 30. It's kind of a, this chapter, you could say, is a gloss on that song. It says, the Lord puts to death, but the Lord makes alive. He wounds, but he will heal. Now, what does the restoration that's only hinted at in Hosea 5 look like? I think it's so important when we read passages like this to bring to mind that we do know something about the love and mercy of God that Hosea did not. We know that God did not wait for humankind to finally get its act together and put its idols away and seek him with the integrity that his majesty requires. We know 
that the lion of Hosea 5 becomes the lamb of John 1 who takes away the sins of the world. And we know that that God, as a shepherd, promises to lead us to streams of living water, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to heal our diseases. And we know that this God is present among us today to forgive us of our sins, to nourish us from his table, and to commission us into his service. There's a great theologian I like. I guess I think he's great, but... um, He talks about the problem of getting God off your back. And the idea is that as long as God remains an abstraction, and whether he's a source of judgment or just anxiety or worry, God is on your back. And no theology, no judo or sophisticated arguments get God off your back. The only thing that works is Jesus Christ present through the Holy Spirit. His mercy proclaimed in the present tense. Uh, The restoration of our world is painfully incomplete. The actual Chernobyl remains entombed, poisoning the earth. But that renewal, through the eyes of faith, it has begun. If anyone is in Christ... There is new creation. I want to say a final word uh, by way of application. I'm terrible at application, but I'm going to try it here. It's about the primacy of repentance. Repentance. The nuclear meltdown analogy might be a little too apocalyptic for your taste, but I think it's apt. I was reading today, or this week, Uh, There are forest fires in Alaska that are the size, it's like the size of California. And it reminded me of, frankly, the reality of climate change and the threat that that poses to the world's most vulnerable people. I was talking to a friend last week whose, whose wife walks to work and was reminded in a very visceral way about the a homelessness in Austin, and how powerless and futile it feels for one individual person to make a meaningful difference. It's not hard to think of illustrations of how broken our world indeed is. And I think what I want to say is that we are living in some ways in the days of Jeroboam II. It's a time of economic prosperity, at least for those who already made it. May God help us to not turn a blind eye to the poison of idolatry which hangs over our world, to sunbathe where we should be repenting. And therefore, may our liturgical life as a church and our own personal lives as followers of Jesus be characterized with a lament for the injustice in our world, and repentance for our complicity in its brokenness. God will plant in that fertile soil a vision for the difference we can make. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.